Conviction is brought to you by Three Ring Circus Productions. For links to our valued sponsors and all the show notes from this podcast, please visit our website, threeringcircus.com.au. In the previous episode of Conviction, the stakes in the Harrison Flack investigation had risen significantly. After discovering a safe house where Flack and Harris had hidden a cache of weapons, the team at Project Gaimir were fearing a gangland war was about to erupt over an entire garage of missing drugs. Drugs that had been seized by the police and not a rival gang as they suspected. A decision was made to disable the weapons to avoid any bloodshed should tensions escalate. And we begin this episode as Craig desperately tries to alert a team of covert officers that the next door neighbour is unexpectedly approaching the house. The only thing I could think of was shit, shit, shit. Here I am, the team leader for the day and something like this happens. And uh, it's always the unexpected. I suppose, you know, sometimes you just got to be a lateral thinker. Things happen in these jobs that are unexpected and you've got to deal with it. Luckily, the boys inside heard what we'd said over the, the radio and had reacted really quick and that they were able to get all the stuff cleaned up, you know, if they'd had all the guns laid out. Because, uh, you know, they weren't expecting anyone to come in. If they had the guns laid out, it would have been a lot harder. So the timing wasn't too bad. you got three burly guys all making a jump for wherever they could to hide because they don't know who's coming in. And all of a sudden on the outside, everything's just gone to silence. We can't radio. We don't know what's going in there. we just got to leave it to the three guys in there to control things. If they get caught in there, they've got to control it. And again, that's part of their training as well and what they do. We're sitting out there in this deadly silence and you could see everyone, well, I couldn't see everyone, but I could see a couple of guys and everyone's looking like ghosts at the moment. This is unexpected. And again, this is the high risk I was telling you about. Usually we plan much better for this, but because the way the job's gone, we didn't have a choice and we had to uh, have these risks to try and get uh, in front of the play. It was the longest 10 minutes of our lives. Probably 10 minutes later, the same lady comes out the door. There's been no radio communication with our team. We don't know whether they've been caught uh, and they've spoken to her or whatever, but we're assuming that we've had no radio contact back, that everything has gone all right. And it wasn't until we got back on the radio and informed them that, yes, she's out the door, she's gone back out onto the road, she walked into the house on the western side. There's no vis anymore, so it's safe to come out if you're hiding. Sure enough, we get a thing. Okay, we're okay, but it was close. The boys said they just ducked for cover everywhere. As I said, wardrobes, under beds. She'd actually come into the same room they were in and grab the laundry. We soon learn it's the mother. The mother lives next door. It's the mother to the barmaid. She'd come in and done part of the laundry. She's obviously going to come back and finish it off. And our guys just wanted to get the hell out of there. The job was done. They just made sure that everything was back in exactly the same spot as how they'd uh, found it. So there was obviously going to be no uh, consequences later and got out at the lower level, which we'd got in at. So there was no visibility of them leaving through the front door and that if she was out the front, she wouldn't see that. 
we brought in a couple of vans then to uh, try and cover the, the exit, which we did, and we managed to get uh, in and out without being found out and uh, nothing else, and that was it. The job was done. We had the uh, weapons disarmed. They were still, if you looked at them, they looked normal. You'd have to be uh, pretty good to discover that the firing pins were gone. And again, we all went back to the office and we couldn't you know, believe our luck, how close it was. Again, it was another big meeting. You know, we've got um, not only us as an investigative team, we've got the Crimes Commissioner and we've got analysts, we've got solicitors. <clears throat> a lot of people involved and vested interest with the job. And it was pretty much decided that uh, this is as far as we're going to take it. I was getting to a point where the risk were going to be higher than what they weren't. And therefore, we had to uh, draw up a strategy of an arrest phase. It was time to end it. It had gone on a long time. It wasn't the only job that we were doing, but this was the major job that we were doing. Again, it was Flack who was pretty much nicknamed as the untouchable by the NCA back in the days because uh, they could never catch him with the goods. Um, <clears throat> had been caught by us. Uh, we had him on enough to send him to jail. And there was pretty much of no getting out of it. It was video and telephone intercepts and everything else. Yeah, whether he gave evidence or not, it didn't matter. We had enough evidence there to uh, prosecute him and that's what the go was and there was a number of others. So it was then uh, a matter of still keeping in touch with what they were doing in case something else happened, but going back into the office now and, and coming up with plans to do an arrest phase. It wasn't just Flack and Harris. We still had further charges on some of the ones who were already in jail. We had uh, Jordan, who had done the drug running up to Queensland. He had further charges in relation to other drug matters that we had with Flack and Harris. We had um, Mulcahy and Montgomery. They had all the cannabis charges to be added to their 750 kilos of the compressed hashish. So uh, they were going to have extra charges put on them, even though they are in custody. Probably wouldn't get any more sentencing, uh, because usually once you get sentenced on a certain amount, you, uh, you don't cop much more. Uh, so there was a lot of planning. And due to the weapons, there was a lot of discussion on you know, whether we had to do tactical entries. And tactical entries is usually where people carry guns. We have our uh, tactical operations unit, or TRG, back in the day, earlier days, come in and they do the entry because of the danger that's involved. At this point in our podcast, we're about to understand a unique aspect of Craig's undercover work. You see, when you follow, observe and document a criminal's life, you are often faced with the inconvenient reality that they are not wholly evil. They have families they love and care for, friends who they support and help, and are often solid contributors to community causes. And it's often the case that their friends and family have no true understanding of their criminal exploits. Craig had observed this time and time again, and although it never clouded his judgment, it gave him a counterintuitive sense of empathy. So the list came out of uh, everyone sort of allocated who they're going to be involved with arrests or whatever. The two major players were obviously Flack and Harris. So one of the other guys in the unit got um, Flack and I was given Harris as a person in charge to arrest, carry through with the sentencing, etc. So to me, I had actually you know, got to know Harry, as I mentioned in previous episodes, pretty well. And I thought he was a character. He was a, not a bad bloke. Uh, apart from the 
criminal element that and that was part of his business and I respected the fact of other parts of his life I knew he had a wife a young wife and a young uh, child the child I don't think would have even been over one um, maybe one and a half so I knew what his family was like I'd been sitting off his house a number of times and I've not only witnessed all the things he'd done criminally but I've also seen the other things he'd done part of his life and as I said he wasn't a bad bloke he was into sports like myself. And I thought a tactical entrance on Harris is that isn't needed really. And um, when we're doing the briefing and, you know, we're there talking about things, I actually piped up and said, you know, if I'm doing Harris, is there any chance that I could do it how I want to do it? And the boss said, well, of course you can. You've got the the initiative to do it how you want to do it. And, and what is it? And I said, look, you know, I appreciate that uh, tactical entry is good, but I think down the line it's probably not because he's got a young kid and a wife and I think we can manage it better and I asked if I could actually just do the entry myself by knocking on the door with my partner and I think it would go down better and it would make the arrest phase a lot easier anyway they said look we'll have the tactical unit there in case he doesn't answer the door and something does happen I said I appreciate that that's fine they can they can be there we're gonna have the extra police and uh, that's how I planned it. So I spent a whole day planning with my partner how we're going to do it, what we're going to do. We had to obviously get all the information for the arrest. It's not just a matter of going to grab him. We needed to have a lot of material in case he did want to be interviewed. If he did want to be interviewed, we had to then get different um, parts of telephone intercepts and all that ready so we could play it in front of him to get him to answer questions. And there's a lot of pre preparation before you actually go into these big jobs the arrest phase and that's what we did the arrest phase is pretty similar to the other ones where we go in at a coordinated time so one guy can't ring the other or and vice versa if you know they lock themselves in the house and they tell the other to get going quite obvious you know we we do a dawn raid when we know they're in bed at a safe time they're not together um, there are other circumstances i suppose in jobs where you do do it slightly different but this was the easiest one I was of the belief too that Harris's wife had no idea on what he was doing on the side. She obviously knew he was a strength and conditioning coach and um, had no idea who he was knocking around with and, and what he was doing on the side to get some extra money. I, I take it that's what he was doing. So the benefit of doing it at home at this time with his wife being present was also that the fact that he probably wouldn't do anything violent or dangerous and he wouldn't jeopardise his family as well the day came and it was a six o'clock raid as i said there was a number of police we also had a lot a number of um, analysts that come from the crime commission because after the arrest phase they go in and, and do the search with police uh i can remember waiting across the road at probably about half past five and uh going through all the things you want to ask him and what you're going to say and that uh, half hour seems to just go slow and slow and slow anyway myself and my partner we're in uh, more or less a suit, um, walk over, I've got a uh, bulletproof vest on with the flap that pulls down to say police. Go up to his house, his house is a two-storey brick house out in uh, the inner west near Croydon I think from memory. Big doors on the front with glazed glass to the side and front. That sort of panelling that you can sort of see in but you can't, you can just see a, a figure walk through or whatever. Ring the doorbell at 6am, which is always, you know, one of those ones you can imagine being in the side. If the doorbell rings, you're thinking, what the hell's this? 
and it's the same on the outside, you think, well, what the hell's going to happen here? Ring it again, nothing happened, and all of a sudden I see this big burly figure coming down the stairs. And of course it's Harris. Couldn't miss it. I could see uh, roughly that all he had was a towel wrapped around him, so that's good. Didn't have a gun. Comes to the door. The door's got a lock fly screen on the front. Opens the door. I introduce myself and uh, my partner. And Bursa just said to him, mate, I said, uh, <clears throat> been following you for some time and know what you and Glenn Flack have been up to. I said, uh, there's an easy way and a hard way today. I said, if you don't want to open the door, there's a heap of guys around the corner with weapons that want to come busting through and I'm sure it's going to upset your wife and child. Or If you want to uh, open the door, we can do it the gentleman's way and uh, it'll be a lot easier. And He just reached down, opened the door and that was it. And uh, it made it very easy and I think he respected it as well. He said, my wife's upstairs in bed, and I said, I understand that, I appreciate that, I'll have to come up with you, but I won't intrude, but if you stand at the doorway with me and tell her to get a gown on and come out, we can explain things together and uh, we'll go from there. And I think he really appreciated it. It was one of those arrests where it could have gone nasty and could have been yucky for his family, but uh, I think we did it a respectful way. As I said, I'd got to know him over a period of time. We stayed there probably for about an hour and his wife was obviously very distressed and upset and uh, didn't say too much because she, I believe, had no idea what was going on. We probably had about uh, 10 police come in with analysts as well. There was a lot of material to go through, paperwork and things that they want to search for because the Crimes Commission do seize any assets that they benefit from crime. So they'll do a lot of searching there. We have a window of opportunity to arrest Harris and get him back to a police station and charge. It's not like you have all day. You've, you've got a window of opportunity to <clears throat> make the arrest and then get back to interview and charge. So we couldn't hang around there. So we left the police with an independent officer who oversees everything <clears throat> and they did the search. The police were, I think, from the internal affairs branch of our unit. And my partner and I went back to the nearest, probably Croydon police station with Harris to uh, conduct an interview. We uh, sat Harris down in the interview room and gave him the spiel. He's obviously been cautioned at the scene and told he was under arrest for, for drug offences. Basically gave him a 10 minute spiel and you know what we knew and didn't give him the whole information but basically said, you know, we know exactly what you've been doing every second of the day for the last year and a half, two years, and uh, ran through a few things and <clears throat> told him that we had the video evidence and telephone intercepts, and I asked him if he wanted to uh, undergo an electronic interview, which is the normal procedure, and he said no, and I was quite happy because it's less paperwork for me and didn't have to go through all that uh, interview with him, it would have been endless. Uh, basically we had all the material we needed. So it did make my job a little bit easier. So he was just taken straight through to the charge room. He was arrested, refused bail, obviously, for the uh, seriousness of the crime involving guns and drugs. And uh, went to court the next day and was refused bail again. And uh, then obviously goes through a matter of the court dates then, and, and that was it. He went through. Flack was the same. He was arrested with his uh, girlfriend in Sydney. There was a couple of other peripheral guys that would uh, come into play with drugs and other things that were arrested at the same time. So everything went down pretty well and the wrap-up was good. 
I was really relieved. It was it'd been a long time, especially having Jess go through the whole, pretty much the whole procedure from the Clarchy job all the way through to a second round of chemo and radiation and the arm amputation. Um, it was, you know, a busy time. So to see the end of this job was, was a bit of clarity for me, and I, I was happy for it. It's funny, you know, you, I've spoken about the crooks before, and uh, I can remember going through all the court matters with um, Harris, finally got to his sentencing, where he got sentenced, and it was at the Supreme Court in, in Sydney, and I just went by myself, my partner didn't come, and uh, a lot of the South Sydney players and coach was actually there, and they saw me as the cop, and there was a bit of heckling, and actually Harris stood up for me and said, no, no, he's a good bloke, just settle down, and Harry said, Craig, come up here, will you? And I said, yeah, okay. So I went up to where he was on the dock. He was handcuffed in the dock waiting for the, the judge to come out and do the sentencing. And he spoke to me nothing about the court matter. He said, mate, I read the paper the other day and I, I saw that um, you're doing a marathon. You've got a marathon coming up. And I'm sorry to hear about your daughter, you know, with what's going on. And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got one coming up. He said, mate, he said, I'd love to do a charity boxing match for you when I get out, if that's all right. I said, sounds good to me. I, I said, uh, if you want to do that, mate, that's fine. So you can never judge a book by its cover. As I said, I, I spent a lot of time watching him and he wasn't a bad fellow. With the successful conclusion of the Harrison Flack case, Craig begins to refocus on his training for the next ultramarathon. It was welcome balance against the monotony of the tedious but necessary desk duties that follow the arrests and precede the final act of a trial. Yeah, it was so good to have the arrest phase finished, but... Um the unfortunate thing was after the arrest phase comes the paperwork trial and the evidence trial after a year, year and a half of following these guys and collating all the telephone intercepts and where they'd been and what they'd done and all the drugs that we'd seized and all the exhibits, it was time to put it all together. So um, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I joined these sort of units because you're out investigating crime that's happening at the time, it's exciting. You're watching what's going on in front of you. It's not a um, an old investigation where you're chasing your tail. This is there live and it's happened, but all good things come to an end. Uh, and I had to spend months now at my desk getting a brief together for a time period. You know, we've got to serve briefs on the defendant and their solicitor so they can nitpick it and uh, try and find ways they can get out of it in simple terms. And uh, that's what it was. But I thought, okay, let's turn this into a positive. I know I'm going to be in here during the day most of the time. There were other jobs that we used to do. There was peripheral targets that weren't arrested that had come into the telephone intercepts or into the investigation. And I'll talk about those at a later stage, but uh, those jobs did come up. But basically I was on day shift for a while in the office. And I hate wasting time, so I know that when I was in the office and listening to telephone intercepts, which then had to be transcribed and making sure the transcribes were perfect to what was on the intercept, putting into a uh, evidentiary form so it can be produced in court, I would have my lunch or do whatever, so during my lunch break I could go out and train. Crimes Commission, I think it was five levels with a car park down below and another level on top roof level, so it was about seven levels. Each level had a double stairway going up in the fire escape and that's what I used to do at lunchtime. I used to do a half-hour stair run. So I'd start at the bottom, do the 14 flights of stairs to the top as fast as I could and then walk back at a good pace back down. Hit the bottom, no rest, straight back up. Do that for half an hour, you're sweating like a pig. 
it was disgusting. You'd have sweat dripping off everywhere, but it was a massive workout. It was great for the legs, so it was really good for my cycling legs. It was good for my running. It was good for my cardio. Uh, it was good for my head. It was good to get off the desk as well and get away from the investigation, just put some music headphones on and get into it. I've got to, you know, you got to remember too, I'm still going through this emotional rollercoaster with Jess. You know, she's at home or at hospital and we're still dealing with that. She was right near the end, you know, we're talking about February now. She was um, getting towards the end of her three-month, a lot of chemo and radiation for this second bout. So you're dealing with that. And I, I find that the fitness side is one of the th- things that helped me. You know, some people turn to alcohol, some people turn to something else. But I always turn to sport or fitness. And it's a great way for me to uh, bash myself up, I suppose people call it. And the stairs were one of those things that would really bash you up. One of the things also I learned from the Queensland Institute was about cycling they were talking about spinning and it's about having so many revolutions per minute on your cycle and building on that so if you're in a really easy gear and you're hitting so many revolutions per minute um, you try and build on that so you could go up a gear which would make you faster but you're still spinning at the same rate so I picked a an area where I live in Avalon, it was 2.8 kilometres off the main road, so I wasn't bothering motorists because, as a motorist, sometimes cyclists are a pain, depending where you ride. So I tried to be uh, as practical as possible and get away from any cars. So I picked this boring 2.8 kilometre. It had slight rise, had flats, it had turns. I didn't have to stop at lights or stop and goes or anything. It was just a full-on 2.8 kilometre loop. And that's what I did. I put it in a, a really low gear and I kept on a, a spinning rate and I'd do maybe two to three hours on this one loop and just continue on. And every time I did it, I tried to improve each time. I tried to improve in my time for each lap and I'd also try and go up a gear at the same spinning rate, which would make me go faster. And this was a great way. I, I, I did learn a lot about this and I eventually, you know, built up so many more gears that I could go up and I was covering greater distance at the same spinning rate. My times on each um, 2.8-kilometre circuit was coming down. And I was I was very new and a novice to this cycling, but <clears throat> I soon studied a bit more and more and it was like when I learned how to paddle. It's the dedication. It's what you put into it, is what you get out of it. You know, you can't expect to do something or read about something without putting the hard work in and, and getting the full potential of yourself out of it and that's what I did I can remember one particular night though I uh, was coming on the on the circuit and I was uh, coming down one of the hills and I'd never had any problems on these circuits and all of a sudden a car obviously didn't see me it was at night because I was training at night and I had my lights on but didn't see me and pulled straight out I gone straight into the front quarter panel on the passenger side and over the bonnet didn't hurt myself just a bit of bark off a bit of blood but uh, my front wheel was a mess. But uh, the bloke kindly said, you know, apologised profusely and fixed me up for the front wheel, which has got a new wheel. So no harm done, but it was a big learning curve as well that things can happen in front of you. And as I later learnt, you know, I used to go out to another place called West Head, which is near us. It's a national park and used to ride through there a lot. And you'd find that uh, on sunset, all the wallabies or kangaroos, small kangaroos, to people in overseas would be uh, going across the road and if you hit one of those when you're doing 60Ks it wouldn't be pretty so uh, that was always on my mind as well I managed to avoid those 
Jessica was, you know, coming right to the very end of a treatment. We were in the last parts and everything seemed to be going well. She was handling the amputation really well. She was in the last part of her chemo. The radiation had finished. There was nothing more they could do with that. It's only, you know, usually up to about a six-week period you can do radiation for due to the burning of the skin, from my knowledge anyway. And, um, yeah, she was handling everything really well. School was great. They'd been, you know, terrific again. And all the peers were just fantastic. So she was in a good spot. She knew that the tri the the uh, programs were just about to finish and she was going to start back to a normal life as well. And it must have been probably around the last week or if it wasn't, it was probably the last session that she had. We came home and uh, again, it was one of those nights where you're just lying around the summer nights and the younger kids started to go to bed and Lisa and I uh, went into her room when she was asleep and decided to give her the news and uh, told her that Lisa was pregnant and uh, she had this grin from ear to ear and we said you know you can't tell anyone else it's our little secret and that's it and uh, she was the same as you know when Lisa found out she was pregnant this big smile came on her face so it was really really nice. This was a joyous moment in the Guse household. Everything appeared to be falling into place and Craig was on a high. However, the reality was that Craig's world was about to come crashing to the ground. Join us next time for the continuation of Conviction, the Craig Guse story.